Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Described as the greatest living exponent of the electric violin by the BBC, pioneering violinist and composer Tracy Silverman believes strings must evolve or they will perish, and his mission is to reconnect strings with our popular culture and to teach string players to groove. His groundbreaking work incorporating rock, jazz, Americana, hip-hop, and other popular genres with the six-string electric guitar has upended the contemporary classical genre, and his strum bowing method has been adopted by performers all over the world. Terry Riley described Tracy's violin playing as being like an orchestra itself. John Adams said, When I heard Tracy play, I was reminded that in almost all cultures, other than the European classical one, the real meaning of music is in between the notes. No one makes that instrument sing and soar like Tracy, floating on the cusp between Heifetz and Jimi Hendrix. Tracy was the first violinist in the Turtle String Quartet and was named one of the 100 Distinguished Alumni by the Juilliard School, and as a young composer has three electric violin concertos, among other works, and has performed concertos written for him by John Adams, Terry Riley, Nico Muley, and Kenji Bunch. The violin virtuoso and humanitarian was recently featured on NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts, Performance Today, CBS Sunday Morning, and A Prairie Home Companion and is an internationally in-demand clinician and currently teaches at Belmont University in Nashville. Tracy, I'm so excited to have you on One Symphony today, and I just wanted to start by asking you, you recount the story of being at Juilliard and encountering the book, The Agony of Modern Music by Henry Pleasance. I had never heard of the book, strangely enough, maybe because I'm, I conduct too much modern music. Can you talk about how your early experiences with music and culture shaped your career into what it is today. Yes. Well, I have that book right here in my hand. It sits on my desk within easy grasp. Just to remind me, uh, this is actually from 
the Juilliard Library. Don't tell anyone. Probably a, a late fee involved. I don't think anybody's ever done that with a library book before. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe not with this one anyway, but you know, this book, it struck a nerve because his whole thesis in this book is that all the great masterpieces were written in the popular idiom of their day. All our classical music was basically pop music. It was art music, but in the popular idiom. And I knew that was true. It just rang true. And I had been composing since I was a little kid. I always, you know, just felt that was part of what I did was creating music. And I knew that it was my responsibility to play in the current idiom, which now I'm kind of old. So, you know, this was back in the 70s when I was at Juilliard, right? So the current idiom was rock and roll. And, you know, all my friends in high school listened to rock and roll. They listened to Led Zepp and Black Sabbath and Jimi Hendrix and Carlos Santana. Everybody had a favorite guitar player. And I wanted to make music that my friends would think was cool and would get, frankly, that they would just understand. Because to them, the Sibelius Violin Concerto, as much as it meant the world to me, they had no idea what that was. It sounded old fashioned to them. As far as they were concerned, it was something from like a movie or whatever. You know, it was just old fashioned. Didn't sound like their music. So that's kind of how it began. And I realized that as both as a composer, I needed to basically write in a rock or jazz or some kind, you know, popular idiom. And as a player, I needed to find a way to express myself on the violin that was basically, to make a long story short, closer to the electric guitar, because that was the lingua franca of my generation. You know, that was the language that my friends spoke was guitar, rock and roll. And turns out if you put a, a violin through a martial amp, it kind of sounds a lot like an electric guitar, <laughs> you know? Um, if basically adding all that tube distortion or however you get distortion out of a, a pedal or whatever kind of levels the playing field. Suddenly your violin can function like a guitar in a rock band. And then, you know, especially I, I started adding these two lower strings so that it has six strings like a guitar uh, and goes down to the bottom of the guitar range, which is really significant because guitars play chords. Uh, and a lot of that is in the lower register, especially in rock and roll, like power chords are just fifths down in the low range. And that's a full octave below where the regular acoustic violin can go. So adding those two lower strings gave the instrument very needed real estate in order to be able to rock, basically. So that's that's kind of how all that started. I'm not sure if that was your question, but <laughs> that was my answer. <laughs> it's interesting that you seem to have re-added what was lost after Bach, because Bach had these viols with all these strings and in, in the Baroque in the 1600s. Yes, he did. I'm kind of curious. Do you know about the history of like why those strings disappeared? And then obviously people like you are starting to re-add them uh, for for the total palette. Well, I don't know exactly why they disappeared, maybe because they're so hard to play, but there were a, a variety of multi-string bowed instruments, gambas, damores, you know, with sympathetic strings and uh, in other cultures, there are hardanger fiddles and, you know, all kinds of varieties. 
and the four string violin and viola still haven't gotten really settled they they still haven't figured out what size is the right size for a viola so it's a, it's a work in progress but the violins seem to have kind of standardized sometime after Stradivarius because you know those guys Stradivarius Guarneri those guys were making the the great violins in the late 1600s uh, early 1700s we really don't know what those instruments sound like because they've all been modern modernized mostly I mean I guess there are a few still out there in the original condition but that isn't actually the way Stradivarius intended his instruments to sound they were much softer but at any rate, the the violins seem to have standardized sometime in the, uh, you know, 17 or 1800s into these sort of modern instruments with a modern bow. And because it's it works so well, <laughs> and it's almost a perfect instrument in so many ways, it hasn't changed. But that doesn't mean that it can't or shouldn't even physically change by adding extra strings if there is a musical need for them. And needing to rock was the musical need for that. And of course, it seemed to me that, you know, they had electrified the guitar uh, sometime in, you know, the mid 20th century. And it took rock and roll players to really exploit some of those possibilities of electrifying it rather than just being able to compete in a jazz ensemble, you know, like Charlie Christian did, playing it in a fairly you know, clean way, guys like Hendrix started messing with effects and distortion and all that kind of stuff. And it really became a very different instrument than an acoustic guitar. And it seemed to me pretty logical that, well, why wouldn't somebody just do that for the violin? And it had been started back in the 70s when I was doing this. Jean-Luc was already out and had records out, Jean-Luc Ponty. And I was, you know, I had those records and I listened to them. But he was basically playing jazz and jazz fusion. He wasn't really rocking out the way I wanted to with distortion and a, and a really kind of rock and roll post-Hendrix manner you know that was imitating the new possibilities of the electric guitar and modeling that on electric violin into rock your older brother and your dad was into jazz yeah. was it kind of a, a non-choice for you to get into music and you obviously started with the classical um, path yeah uh, it's a good question was it a non-choice you know it was almost something I never really thought about because it was kind of assumed I started very young my dad uh, is a jazz fan uh, still is but is also a huge classical fan and and pretty well well read well listened to you know he he's he's got a big record collection and as a, a fan of a lot of you know arcane stuff so I, I grew up with that 
surrounding me, first the classical music and jazz that I heard from my dad. And then later when I was a teenager, my older brother had, you know, lots of 70s rock, you know, that we would listen to. So I had all all of that. My mom was kind of into musicals. You know, she was going to be an actress uh, on Broadway. So she was like, you know, we had musicals. So there was a real, uh, a lot of music going around. So I was really lucky, you know, to have that as a background. And, you know, I took to it pretty early. And by the, you know, I was going to like Juilliard pre-college when I was like eight, you know, I was kind of on that track and it made my debut with the Chicago Symphony when I was 13. So, you know, it was always just kind of became something that I was serious about and good at. And what was the debut on? What piece? And do you remember the conductor? Yeah, the Sanson B minor violin concerto. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. With Henry Mazur was the conductor of Chicago Symphony, the assistant conductor over there. Yeah. Did all that kind of stuff. And then really thought, you know, like I like to joke, I went to Juilliard hoping to be the next Yasha Heifetz and left wanting to be the next Jimi Hendrix. So <laughs> that's what Juilliard usually does to people, right? <laughs> it was very helpful in my career and defi- helping to define my career. But, uh, you know, I mean, the truth was I did come face to face with, you know, I mean, in my my class, the class that I was in had Bobby McDuffie, Jimmy Lynn, Nigel Kennedy was the year before. Uh, I mean, all these guys, Nadja Salerno, Sonnenberg, you know, they were just like, tons of amazing players, none of whom could get into the practice rooms because those were dominated by piano players who had first dibs on all the piano. Yeah, because violins can practice anywhere. Right. We can practice in our apartments. (laughs) But, uh, you know, piano players just playing Chopin ballads from, you know, 6 a.m. till one in the morning. And I was just like, you know, there was this level of kind of the Olympics, musical Olympics that I was suddenly involved with and I could very well have competed with them. Uh, I just kind of went, you know what, in order to play this game, I got to commit to like 10 hours a day, you know, for reals and for a long time. And I, I really was more interested in composing. I was more interested in playing jazz. I was really getting interested in rock and roll. And then I read that damn book and I was like, oh, that's it. You know, so that's why it was very, very central to me because that was like I had a path and I chose the path, you know, the the road less traveled by. And you said that art is not about being perfect. It's about being a person. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why the, the whole musical Olympics part of it just didn't appeal to me. You know, I was like and the people who do appeal to me are my mentors, people like Terry Riley, who I've been so fortunate to have gotten to know and who have passed along just nuggets of wisdom to me just in passing without even realizing that he was saying them when he would say things to me like, if you're not fucking up, you're probably not improvising. So, (laughs) you know, which was the sort of embrace of humanity that I love about Terry because that's what music is about. It's about exploration. It's about taking chances. It's about winning some, losing some, and, you know, having a conversation and not thinking everything through and doing something where you're executing, you know, a gymnastic routine or something like that. You know, that just wasn't at all what I was 
wanted to focus on. Yeah, it's interesting that kind of that the classical music mentality, because I always like to compare it to being a, a baseball player or something where if, you, if you're getting three out of 10, yeah. you know, batting 300, you're, a, you're making millions of dollars in the <laughs> classical music world. It's, it's like, uh, that's, that's not going <laughs> to, but you're right. The, I think the older I get, the more I come to that idea of it's, it's about the emotion that you can, that you create, you know, with your performers and that you impart to the audience. Cause that's what they're here to see. Cause anybody, anybody can listen to the best orchestra in the world, you know, uh, in the studio playing any symphony and if they want near perfection, but even, even then perfection is just something that's kind of obsolete. Yeah. And you know, you hear it all the time in pop music and this is what really started. I started to really focus on was this idea. Like you would listen to guys like Ray Charles and you hear all of this soul and humanity and crying. Just the, the part that touches you as a person, right? And you listen to his voice and it's cracking and it's got it and it's flawed as hell. You know, it's not a perfect voice. And that's what that's part of what makes it work. And you know, to, to realize that, that, that gritty reality, you know, a funny thing happened. I was uh, my very first record for Wyndham Hill. I was playing this tune called, uh, here comes the sun by the Beatles. And it's on uh, a record called trip to the sun, which was my, my first record ever. And, um, and so I was recording this tune and I had this cool accompaniment and I was playing the tune, you know, and I, and I listened to it back. I recorded the whole thing, cleaned it up, got it perfect, spent the whole evening on it. I listened back to it. And I was like, this sounds so slick and smooth and like smooth jazz or something. I was just like, ugh. <laughs> you know, it's not at all what I wanted it to sound like. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to just try to play this as if it was Ray Charles singing it. And so I left all this gritty and I purposely like let made a no crack funny and and I was like, yes. play the violin in a way that somebody would expect the violin to be played. I would rather it sound like it was being played by somebody who had never heard a violin before. Like somebody who never heard the Tchaikovsky violin, somebody never heard David Oistrakh or Nathan Milstein or any of these great virtuosos, which I had, so it was difficult for me, but to try to imagine somebody who was just like picking this up and trying to 
make it sound like the way they would sing it and just throw away all that baggage of what makes a good tone, what's beautiful string playing, what's the right, you know, and use a vibrato that's not a classical vibrato, a bow technique that's not classical. So that was kind of how I started my career, you know, with, um, you know, on my first record, I was just definitely trying to, to not, um, not really even sound like a violin, to be honest. I was trying to sound like a horn half the time or a guitar or a vocal, any, you know, anything but uh, what you would expect a violin to sound like. I don't know. I'm not quite sure why <laughs> I took violin lessons all my life. What? <laughs> You talk about how uh, sort of the American idiom or the contemporary idiom is something that we all know we can hear and we it, it's all around us in our culture, as opposed to maybe a hundred years ago, you know, with Shostakovich or Prokofiev or a couple hundred years ago with Mozart, Haydn, or 150 years ago with Strauss. Like we, we look at the notes and we want to, especially I think maybe in the past 50 years, American orchestras. Uh, perfecting the notes as opposed to stretching the 16th notes or in a, in a Strauss waltz, like since Vienna Philharmonic's been playing it for what, 200 years, they, they, bum, bum, bum. I mean, it's not even close to as written. Can you kind of talk about how some of those right. elements that we apply to rhythm and style can be applied to older music or your thoughts when, when you're teaching about those aspects? Yeah, well, there's a, a couple of things. You know, orchestral music is, you know, fundamentally different from what a, so, what a small group ensemble can do just, just because there are, you know, so many people involved and there's only so much that a feel kind of thing that's really possible. But that aside, I think I have a kind of a thing about groove and how that applies to classical music because I think the whole idea of rhythm in classical literature has has gotten uh, more and more genteel and less vigorous shall we say in most folk music you know whether that's folk fiddling going back to you know Celtic and bluegrass and that kind of stuff or any kind of a folk style, there tends to be anything that's that involves dance or groove, right? Which a lot of music does. A lot of folk music accompanies dance all over the world. The groove is really important because when people are dancing, if you if you mess up the groove, people start falling, <laughs> essentially. So you have a responsibility, you know, a, a function um, that is almost you know more than musical. It's it's a uh, um, there's an occasion going on, there's a situation, and, and you are taking part in an activity. So there's a, a sort of, let's call it this sort of folk emphasis on rhythm, okay, so that's driving dance. And then you have classical music, a lot of which has been elevated from sort of the dance floor to the concert stage, which is sort of art music, much of which is based on dances, at least certainly in Bach, you know, in the Baroque period. But even still throughout Beethoven symphonies, Brahms symphonies, there are folk dances, especially in the last movements that, that appear all over in Dvorak and, you know. But this idea of playing those rhythms in a way that is really strong and, and rhythmic and almost 
you know, in that powerful way is, is something that I think classical music has, has just gotten away from further and further, and especially in the last hundred years or so. And one of the, just one of my pet peeves is playing Bach in a really romantic style, which just drives me crazy. You know, you can't... Or, or, or Mozart or Beethoven, for yeah, that matter. Yeah, Because they're not really romantics. No. <laughs> you know, and Bach can survive it better than, than Mozart, because it's Mozart is so stylized with the Viennese style that, you, you know, it, it just seems ridiculous to overly romanticize it sometimes, but... Bach somehow with the solo sonatas and, you know, you can just dwell on notes and, you know, you can get very indulgent in playing your instrument also in a way that you just like give yourself time whenever you need it. And I'm like, come on, people. The dancers will wait. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> like, but even when the tempo is stricter, there's just a sort of a sense that the downbeat shouldn't be overemphasized because it's too obvious and it's too cliche. and also, it's too vulgar, you know, because it's classical music has just gotten very genteel, you know. I like that term. Let's play less genteel. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and but, you know, if you play in a rock band for a while or even in a jazz band, you, you, you come more into contact with how strong the one is. The downbeat really has meaning. And I think that that, that could... I think that should be in a lot of classical music because I think that a lot of classical music is much more alive than sometimes we play it, you know, especially things like Mozart and Beethoven. And we get very precious about how we play them. And we forget that this stuff was was really hip at one point, you know, <laughs> still can be. But it's hard for us to imagine Mozart as being like like Anderson Pack or something, you know, just being like. <laughs> The latest cool shit. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he was a rock like, star. You know. And, and just the fact that what was what was cool and hip about it was not so much even the celebrity factor of it, but the way it made you move. Because every generation is defined by the way they dress and the way they move, you know. And there's a way that hip hop moves that's different from rock and roll, you know, which is different from jazz. And there's just a little bit different way it moves your body because the beats are different and we respond to those in a physical way. And that connection between our physical response to the beat, to the music, how it makes us move and act as people, how that defines our generation is something that somehow when you take Mozart and you put it on a, on a pedestal because it deserves to be, because it's, you know, perfect music, you can easily forget that it actually made people move in a certain Viennese way that we will have no idea what that actually looked like because there were no cameras. But they used to bop to that stuff in a physical way, I guarantee you. And, you know, whatever that was, that was what it was all about. And if you want to really play it the way he would want it to be played, you probably have to figure out how to dance to it. Thank you. 
And you talk about as a performing musician, particularly if you've played more classical or you're trained more classically, you really have to marry the mind and the body, like kind of get the groove in your body and soul. I think you were talking with Mark O'Connor, talking about yeah. tapping your feet, which is something that orchestras is quite frowned upon, you know, um, you know, to just feel the subdivision and the backbeats of the music. And I find just as, you know, rehearsing with orchestras, that's how you bring music to life. Can you talk about that or your experience with, with students in that regard? Well, look at any rock band or any jazz band. If they're not moving together, they're probably no good, right? I mean, you're going to always see the, you know, guitar players, like you have two guitar players, that, they're in unison, you know, with the drummer and everybody's, everybody's grooving to a pulse. In yeah. classical music that's so frowned upon, first of all, in a, you know, in an orchestra, I mean, if you want people to play together, you have to get them to move together. That's all there is to it. There's no, well, but we can do it. No, no. If you're not moving together, you are not playing together. The closest we get in classical music is giving a pickup. Everyone breathe together. <gasps> Boom. Okay, that's as close as we get to moving together. And then we don't move to after the piece is finished. <laughs> right. That's acceptable. And then the other way that we can move as classical musicians is, is to the what I call the emotional grid. As opposed to the pulse grid, you know, the, the beat, the rhythmic grid. The emotional grid is where the phrase is going up and where the phrase is going down or whatever, you know. So that kind of moving, which is almost more like acting, is, you know, allowed, is acceptable because it helps you perform this function of orating, basically, rather than dancing. So that's kind of like the difference as a string player. This is what I talk about a lot is the difference between playing melody and playing rhythm. And how these are very two very different things, because one is closer to orating, to, to acting or to singing, and the other is closer to dancing or is partially dancing. Your body has to move in rhythm or you cannot play in rhythm. Rhythmic music comes from rhythmic movement. That's like something I, I repeat in my book a lot. <laughs> talked about how two rhythms, two kind of, maybe you could call them hemiolas or contrasting rhythms, create this third, almost spiritual portion of, of, of something. And when I read that, I don't remember where it was, but I think of this very common effect in romantic music used by the likes of Brahms, Bruckner, Dvorak, everybody who was writing symphonies in the 18, late 1800s. There's always this two against three pull. You know, and, and it probably came from a little Beethoven Eroica. He's using it in the, I mean, the first movement, the orchestra trying to play that for the first time, literally, you know, had to stop every 20 bars because of the, because of the hemiolas. 
Uh, but, but you talked about like just two different rhythms that can create this third undercurrent that is there, but that, that sort of exists, but um, maybe like dark matter or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious about that, yeah. that, that uh, idea. Well, there are kind of two diff- different things here. The, the three against two thing and all of that great, uh, which is such a great rhythmic device. You know, it's, it's one of the, one of the hearts of African music. A lot of African music has that six where it's two groups of three and three groups of two, which is um, so powerful. And so it just, it, it creates a, a wonderful subdivision by doing that, you know, but what I was referring to is a theory that I want to try to get back to. Um, I have, I haven't been able to, to make it, to pull this off musically. But the idea was that if you have two different, well, it's kind of like if you have two frequencies that are close to each other, they will produce a beating, which you can kind of demonstrate if you take uh, on a violin. It's something that I came across because as a string player, you have sort of this unique ability to sustain a slightly out of tune um, unison, (laughs) right? So you could have like an open D and a D finger D on the G string and pull one slightly flat to the other so that you get a beating in between those those frequencies and that can actually create a tempo and i've actually used this effect like with a loop where i can just create like a beating by a slight dissonance and you get like a ganga and then you can use that as a rhythm and play to it so that's kind of what i was sort of talking about being able to do that and finding two close tempos almost like steve reichian kind of cycling where the cycling would produce a third tempo (laughs) so i haven't figured out how to pull that off because you have to have sustained pitches and um anyway that was kind of the theory it was very theoretical So you you kind of went around the galaxy, so to speak, discovering uncharted worlds. And then as the prodigal son, you kind of came back into the classical music arena (laughs) through the likes of like John Adams and Terry Riley, and of course, other composers as a a concert soloist. Can you talk about how that transpired? (laughs) Well, it's something that that, you know, my parents are very grateful for at this point, and they're still around. Um, so that they get to uh, to savor the irony of this because, you know, I kind of like I, I mentioned, I sort of a Juilliard, I 
took the fork in the road and my parents will tell you I took the wrong the wrong fork <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, because I spent years trying to develop this instrument and, and sort of pushing this boulder up a hill where they felt like the world was my oyster. Here I was this child prodigy in Juilliard and I should have had a great and successful and lucrative career as a soloist or at least a concert master. The very least was their expectations. <laughs> so, and I was interested in none of that and, uh, you know, started playing like, you know, my own original rock bands at CBGB's at two in the morning for like the bartender and one drunken person at the at the bar and uh it's so they they did see that as a, a bit of a, a waste of, waste of talent and and uh of my 20s <laughs> frankly who doesn't waste their 20s <laughs> but who doesn't waste <laughs> their 20s exactly but what ended up happening is that you know in this sort of you know 10 years of wandering in the desert I had sort of developed this other way of playing violin. Like I say, it took me years to forget everything that I learned at Juilliard. So I had, you know, developed a different way of using my bow, this new instrument with six strings. I was changed my vibrato, changed my whole outlook towards what's, you know, beauty and what isn't and playing rhythm and movement and all of that. And I started doing these solo shows and was doing a program in Bremerhaven, Germany at this festival. And there in the front row is Terry Riley, who I'd never met before, but had heard legendary stories of this mountain man up in his, you know, like a hermit in California. And he turned out to be just the nicest, sweetest, most humble person in the world. And he came up to me after the gig was like, wow, that was really interesting. Do you want to play in my trio? <laughs> I was like... Holy shit, you know, so um, so that started that. And then I happened to be playing with I only say that because I was playing with Terry Riley when John Adams happened to hear me playing. And I was playing this sort of strange combination of jazz and Indian and rock, rock and roll that I do with Terry. That's just this freedom of expression, uh, you know, experience, musical experience. And he was like, that's what I want for for this piece, Dharma at Big Sur. And what do you know? The next thing I know, I'm, you know, back at on Carnegie, the stage of Carnegie Hall. So uh, my parents, you know, were, it took a little too long for them because it was about 30 years after I started with the electric violin, but finally, finally found my way.
and there's these famous stories of violinists like Joachim collaborating with Brahms, uh, I think Tchaikovsky with Yosef Yotek, that uh, young Russian violinist. Did you collaborate on the Dharma at Big Sur with with John Adams at all? Like, what was that like? Yeah, I sure did. So he had already part of a, a big chunk of it written, and he invited me to his studio because it was a commission for the LA Phil that was the big opening of Disney Hall in October. And he saw me play with Terry like the previous March. He's like, I'm going to be working on this this summer. I still, I got to finish this Dr. Atomic whatever. Uh, and then I'm going to start working on, on this piece in the summer. Are you around? Can I give you a call? Sure. So sure enough, in like in August, I get a frenzied call from him. I just, I'm working on the piece. Uh, any chance you can come out to California? Because by this point, I was actually already in, living in Nashville. So I come out there and uh, we get together and he's he's got most of the first movement written and I'm playing through it. And the second movement, he's got like a computer mock-up of some of the orchestra part, but none of the solo part. So he was having me kind of improvise over what he had there. And he was saying stuff like, Play something really rhythmic here, and and now rock out. Put on distortion, rock out. Now, now let me do something like really melodic, sweet. You know, do go really high, get really low. You know. So he's and we were just doing this for for a while, and then it was like midnight, and it's like, okay, can can you come over tomorrow morning at nine? I said, yep, I'll be there. So I was staying at a friend's house. Eight thirty, my phone rings, and it's John. He's like, I got up early this morning, and I'm kind of on a roll. Um, let's make it noon. Okay, great putting my fiddle in the car, getting ready to go. And phone rings, it's John. You know, I'm going like gangbusters. Let's make it three o'clock. I'm, I'm just like, I'm right in the middle. Okay, great. Sure enough, no, no phone call. I show up at three o'clock. He's got the whole second movement handwritten. It's like 15 handwritten pages of music. And that was this, pretty much the second movement. Wow. Yeah. And so did that incorporate any of the things that you had demonstrated the day before? It was a really almost an out-of-body experience because it felt like stuff that I play, but like it was all, but it was better. It was like something I would play if I was a great composer. Wow. That's incredible. You know, and it was like, it, it was like a suit. It was like Taylor. It was like a suit that I just put on and it just fit. It's just like, oh. That's the way I play. <laughs> it was uncanny, uncanny. great composer and you've got <laughs> uh, among other works you've got three incredible electric violin concerti thank you i wanted to um ask you about uh, between the kiss and the chaos which is an yeah. incredible piece i think that captures all of these different works of art in such a profound way can you talk about uh, what drew you to to create that yeah it actually started out as a puppet opera 
there's a guy here in town named Brian Ho, who is the puppeteer at the Nashville Public Library, the main downtown library, which sounds like it might be some sort of trivial thing, but he's a world famous, one of the most famous puppeteers in the world and an incredibly creative guy uh, and an amazing singer, has a, a wonderful tenor voice. So he approached me one day. Our kids were both going to school together. So we knew each other from this Waldorf school that our kids went to. So he said, hey, I got this crazy idea for something I'm thinking of calling masters. And I want to make puppets of all these great artists like Rembrandt and Van Gogh and Picasso. And do you want to do music for them? And I'll sing while I'm puppeteering. So I'll we'll have, um, you know, I'll be uh, like an onstage stage puppeteer singing while the puppets are acting. I said, well, what are, what's the story? He's like, anything you want. <laughs> That's usually what they say. Right. You know, so, so, so I was like, okay, so let me do a little dramaturgy here and, and come up with some little scenarios. So I, so I wrote a couple of little things. One was um, for uh, Michelangelo creating the David. And one was for Van Gogh creating Starry Night. And I thought, you know, how about we have them creating their, you know, some of their most famous works and we see the process, the creative process. So that was, so I wrote these little vignettes about what was going through their head as they were making the, these great works. And we got two in, we shot videos for it. There's actually uh, up on YouTube somewhere, you, um, you can see these. And with him singing and manipulating the puppets, uh, and me playing in the background. And we could never get funding to finish it. So I got a commission to write a, an electric violin concerto. And I had these two great movements that I had written for the masters. And I said, hey, man, you know, I'm going to take these two and add some more artists to them and create a concerto along those lines. So that's kind of where it started. <laughs> interpretation of the Picasso Guernica for the last movement. Yeah, well, I wanted that to be kind of a major kind of work. I just felt like it deserved, not that the other the other works don't, but there's something about Guernica, you know, the fact that it's like 
you know, at the UN and it's just sort of like represents what it does about war and humanity and that kind of thing. It's just such a heavy statement. I don't know. It just uh, occupied that space in my life. And uh, I just wanted to write something kind of epic. Also, each movement is supposed to reflect a kind of a moment in history. Like Michelangelo has a little bit of sort of Gregorian chant, kind of the sound of that period of time that he was working in. And so like the George O'Keefe, I have like a little bit of American jazz kind of feel in that one. And for the Picasso, I sort of was thinking a little bit Shostakovich and and sort of mid 20th century. So that was kind of what I was going after. It was that sort of World War II strife. And, but I wanted it to, to end on a sort of a happy note. Yeah. But the, the happiness being Picasso's, faith in art carrying him through this darkness, basically. The idea that in in creating this work, in showing the horror of, you know, the horse screaming and things like that, that empathy that it takes to look at that is what is, is going to save the human race from the fact that we're all going to kill each other. of Ataka um, connection to the third violin concerto, the, the the love song to the sun, that kind of, I mean, was that intended to follow the Picasso? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you ask because it was actually came out of the little character, the little bug character in the Georgia O'Keeffe movement. Okay. Okay. So the Georgia O'Keeffe movement, not to get too deep into this, but I'm re- I'm kind of proud of this little movement and I and I really felt like it should be a ballet. I was seeing it very much on stage. So it's Georgia the the premise again for each of these movements I created a little vignette, kind of a little dramatic scene that was happening. You know, there's a little mini plot. In this movement, Georgia O'Keeffe, she walks outside her studio into the desert and is looking at stuff around her. And she sees this red poppy and she leans down to look at it. And she gets so close that the red poppy is huge. You know, the painting is huge. And what we can't even see is like there's this tiny microscopic little bug on a piece of pollen, on a grain of pollen in the middle of this huge blossom, right? And that bug, I say in the liner notes to in, in 
in this second concerto, I took the title from my third concerto. The bug is singing its love song to the sun. That's what he's doing, which is the same thing that the flower is doing, which is the same thing that Georgia O'Keeffe is doing. They're all in her painting and her celebration of light uh, as a painter. And the flower's celebration of light as its life source and the bug celebration. And they were, and so that little bug became the central character in my next concerto in the love song to the sun, where it just follows the, the life cycle of a little bug and how important that is to that bug. <laughs> Maybe not to us, unfortunately, but it's important to that bug. And my whole point of writing a huge symphonic work based on the life of a little bug was to try to make a, a, a point that every, every living thing is important to itself. And just as we would not like something much bigger than us to come and stomp on us, we shouldn't go stomping on stuff just because they're inconvenient to us. We have zero right to take their life because their lives are actually pretty freaking amazing, it turns out. If you can feel empathy for the simplest of life, you can feel it for everyone. Exactly. Albert Schweitzer said that. Well, Albert Schweitzer, you quoted from Albert Schweitzer, and, and now I will co-opt it. <laughs> <laughs> Albert Schweitzer said it first. I wish I said that. <laughs> so uh, another piece of yours that I just want to focus on, uh, the, the last piece uh, that I really love is Axis in Orbits. Yeah. Um, these are a bunch of loops that you're creating. One of, it, one of them is a polyphony of crickets. The Moho Perpetuo is, you talked about it being these Roma violinists who play with a ferocity like they have bleeding entrails still caught in their teeth. I've never heard uh, Roma music described in that fashion. And I think it's, I mean, for all the Hungarian music that we play all the time, that needs yeah. to be at the top of the score. <laughs> well, it has that incredible vigor uh, to me. And, and see, that's what I think got lost in this genteel classical <laughs> approach. That that just balls to the wall kind of energy that's in rock that's in f uh, so much folk music and man you hear it in that and the real roma players man they dig in <laughs> experience where I heard um, Yasha Heifetz play Hora Staccato, right? Famous piece. He, he made it famous. You know, it's just a post-staccato and wow, it's just, you know, so clean how he plays a post-staccato. 
And then I heard Jinaku play it. And he's the guy who Heifetz learned it from, got it from. He heard him play it either live or on a recording or something, a very early recording. But he was an early, like, Roma, like, virtuoso gypsy violin guy who wrote the piece. And when he plays it, it sounds like he's still got the blood dripping from his... It was just like... <laughs> the staccato isn't quite as perfect. <laughs> wow, man. It was just like... It was... Uh, it, it just had rock and roll kind of energy wow. to wow. it. Uh, yeah, it was, de- it just made your hair stand up on end. You just went, oh, okay. You know, it was, it, everything else sounded really pale by comparison. So um, that was the the kind of um, energy that, that I was thinking of. Uh, and, and, and also a little bit of that rhythm, that real kind of Baltic crazy rhythm, because there's there's not a bar in 4-4 four, four, or 3-4 three, three, in the whole piece. It's 11 and 13. And, well, as I go today to study Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony and the Brahms Academic Festival Overture and the Malcolm Arnold Four Scottish Dances, you've inspired me to bring so much more fire than <laughs> I'm probably bringing right now. <laughs> well, on that note, Tracy, it's so been so awesome to speak with you today, and I'm looking forward to working with you in the future and to performing some of your music. Man, I hope we get a chance to sometime. That would be great, Devin, man. It's been a been a real joy talking to you. And thanks for asking such great questions. Well, it's easy with you. It's really awesome. You're a great <laughs> human being. Ah, oh, thank you, brother. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. And thanks to Tracy Silverman for sharing his performances and works. You heard Between the Kiss and the Chaos, 100% Forever, The Beatles, Here Comes the Sun, Axis and Orbits, Crazy Times, and John Adams, The Dharma at Big Sur, all performed by Tracy Silver. Additional performances were by The Beatles, Fanny Klamageron, Symphonia Finlandia, Nicholas Harnoncourt, the Berlin Philharmonic, the BBC Symphony, and John Adams. Thanks to the record labels Delos, Naxos, Ace Wonder, and Nunsuch for making this episode possible. You can check out Tracy's music and books at tracysilverman.com and strumboeing.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to lend your support. Please feel free to rate, review, and share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music